Y'all doing all right, Red Oak? Yeah? I hope you're awake. Some of you got, yeah? I know the rain, it like, raise your hand if you love being in a house, sitting on the couch when it's raining. Yeah, blanket, maybe a movie on, maybe a, a book, I don't know. That's good stuff. Don't go to sleep tonight, right now, over the next few minutes. I'll sometimes clap, wake you up, just because we're excited about what we're doing. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 33. Uh, we're going to be closing the, the chapter of the Jacob-Esau cycle that was started back in Genesis 27, when Esau was, uh, Jacob was fleeing from his, uh, his brother's murderous threats. And so... Um, if you have kids, um, I know this is true of you. If you don't, you will see one day. Or maybe you've seen this, but kids give vivid illustrations, right, of just life. Sometimes the Lord will teach you through kids. If you just watch kids, the Lord will teach you something. Um, I remember being at the beach with my family a couple years ago um, and God clearly teaching me something as I was witnessing them at the beach. Uh, Titus is my oldest son. He loves to collect seashells, and, uh, and he sees something unique and different in all of them, right? And he's more of like, I'm going to collect seashells, and I'm going to stay around the surf area. I'm not going to go deep into the ocean. Case is my youngest son. He's the opposite of that. Um, he likes to run into the ocean and punch the waves, right, um, as, as far as he can, as hard as he can. And then he literally roars at the waves, like, he yells at them, like, ah! and then goes straight in, like, into the fray. And I can't blame him uh, because, you know, it's biblical. Like, Psalm 98, 7 says, let the sea roar and all that is in it and the world and those who dwell in it. So, roar at the waves. Right? But Case kind of reminds me of Jacob a little bit, um, of how Jacob treats God. We, we don't want God to hold us because we want to be independent and strong by ourselves. But we don't want to admit that we need him. Well, Case would run deeper, right, headfirst into the waves, and he'd smash into the waves, but then the wave would smash into him, pick him up, slam him down on the ground, right, in the sand, and he'd come running to me, and he'd grab a hold of my leg, right, and he'd want me to hold him. And so I would hold him for a second, right, and then he'd be like, put me down, put me down. I don't need you, Daddy. I don't need you. I can do it. I can do it. I'm like, all right, right? And then he wanted me near to him, but not too close. He wanted me near, but not too close. He would say, oh, 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 daddy, that's a big one. That's a big one. And I was like, yeah, it is to you, right? To him, it was a massive wave. To me, it didn't even come up to my chest, right? And I wonder if that's how sometimes our Heavenly Father looks at us, right? From his perspective, something in front of us isn't that big. But for us, we feel like it's going to come crashing down on us and take us out. And he's there the whole time, willing, ready, able, right, to, to rescue us, to save us. If we would just ask for his help and trust in his strength. You know, and I was willing and able to save Case out of the waves, crashing down on him. And sometimes I actually did a few times without him even asking. And if I did that, how much more our Heavenly Father? who is compassionate and gracious and kind and loving. It just baffles me to think that God loves my kids more than I do. Like, that's astonishing, right? It, it was difficult for me um, when we're playing in the ocean to keep an eye out for Titus and Case at the same time, 
right? Because like the waves are big, they keep coming, the jellyfish were everywhere. And so it's like, I can't keep an eye on both of them at the same time, you know? And, and if I can't do that, but I know God can. Like he, he always sees them, right? He, he never loses sight of them, right? God had his eyes on Jacob, even though Jacob thought the wave of Esau and his men were about to come crashing down on him, as we saw last week in Genesis 32. And, and at the beginning of 33, we're going to see Jacob, he, he's got an angry father-in-law behind him. He thinks he has an angry brother in front of him, right? He's stuck in between a rock and a hard place, and he's trying to appease Esau with all of these gifts of all the animals that he sent ahead of them, right? And, and so he's like, try to put yourself in Jacob's shoes. He's freaking out. It's been decades since he's seen Esau, right? Or maybe Esau's murderous threats will still stand true. He doesn't know, right? Is he still like breathing fire? Does he still have hostility towards his brother? He's not sure. He doesn't know. But we know he had a, he had a sleepless night. He had a restless night. He's been wrestling all night, as we learned from last week, right? And so we're about to dive into Genesis 33. Before we do, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Mighty God, we, we do praise you for the rain. We praise you for replenishing the earth. We praise you for giving us all things that you know that we need and things that we don't know that we need. And we praise you for bringing every person into this room tonight. I know that your word is alive and active. I know that your word penetrates into our hearts and our minds. And I know that you, Holy Spirit, can speak and transform tonight. And I ask that you would do the work that no one else in this room could do. God, that, that you would transform hearts and minds, that you would work restoration and healing and reconciliation in relationships where that needs to happen. I pray that, that we would hear and learn from your word tonight and that you would be honored and glorified. Your kingdom would be advanced. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 33, starting in verse 1. We're just going to work through it verse by verse. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. That's pretty intimidating. He doesn't know what's going to happen. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Maybe this is why Joseph's brothers hated him. Just a little bit. Clearly, there's a lot of favoritism here, right? As we're going to see, he himself went on before him, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So you remember from last week, Jacob has just been humbled by the Lord, right? Jacob has just been broken down of all of his self-dependence, right? In the wrestling match with God, he's limping. Yet we still see that he's not fully depending on the Lord, right? He's still, just like all of us, a work in progress, right? He's still right here. He's showing favoritism. He's putting his least favorite children in the front and then his favorite children in the back because maybe if the first, if Esau and his men take out the first least favorite children, maybe his favorite children and wives can escape. So he's got, he, he might have prayed, but he's still got a plan here, right? So Jacob does, although he does that, which is showing favoritism, he does the noble thing, and he doesn't hide behind all of them. He goes out in front, okay? And he, he's going to go before his family, before all of them. And the scripture says that he bows himself to the ground seven times. 
All right, that, that is significant. The number seven is, is full, complete. He's bowing in humility. Or he's bowing in surrender. Not, I'm coming to fight you, brother, but I'm, I'm coming and I'm laying my arms down. All right, and, and we now know, we know from the last chapter that Jacob feared Esau. All right, so he had some fear of man in him. Right, and he, he, he's trying to appease him by sending these gifts. Now he's coming before him, bowing down to him, trying to, maybe he'll relent of his anger. We know that God's trying to teach Jacob and he started to teach him through this wrestling match that, hey, you don't need to fear your brother. You need to fear me. You don't need to fear man. You need to fear me. You need to rely on me. You need to trust in me. Don't be afraid to face Jacob. You need to be afraid to face the living God. Now look at verse four. We'll see an astonishing passage. This is an amazing verse. This chapter is absolutely incredible. Very gracious chapter. Verse four, it says, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Does that kind of give you some like prodigal son vibes? You think about that? You know, he's, he's coming, he's expecting something else and he gets a completely unexpected reaction, right? And Jacob is absolutely speechless. He was not expecting reconciliation, but yet here his brother is running towards him and, and hugging him and, and kissing him and, and weeping, right? And so we see the main point in the passage here is reconciliation, right? These are grown men, like old men, weeping on each other. They're reunited. They're reconciled. Like forgiveness is extended, hostility laid down, we could learn a lot from this passage because I know for a fact, without having to have a conversation with every person in the room, I know that every person in this room, every person who will listen to this later, every person has brokenness in their lives. Every person has some kind of rift in a relationship, a gap in a relationship, or you've experienced that before and you need reconciliation, right? Primarily, we, we have this, this gap right, in our relationship with God, between God and man. But we definitely have hostility and gaps and, and rifts in relationships with men. Man has hostility towards God, yes, because of our sin, right? Our vertical relationship is rent, it's torn. But Jesus brought peace where there was hostility. Jesus reconciled where there was a rent relationship, we know this to be true because of the Gospels, but then Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, beautiful passage, we're going to read a few verses. It says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, that's through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's an absolutely beautiful gospel-soaked passage, right? God did for us through Jesus what we could never have done for ourselves by providing reconciliation for us. In his massive book, Wayne Grudem 
said this, to overcome our separation from God, we needed someone to provide reconciliation, thereby bringing us back into fellowship with God. Our fellowship was broken. Our intimacy was severed. And Jesus brings us back together with God. He makes the way for us to come back. So clearly, we see that this is a work of God, right? And clearly, God had, he's doing something in Esau's heart. We don't know what, but he's definitely changed from the last time that he saw his brother, right? And, and I know that in my own life, personally, a part of my testimony is w- like whenever I feel like the Lord, uh, the Lord, whenever I feel like the enemy is trying to get me to question my salvation or if ever I have any doubts, then I, I think back on those times when the Lord took away things that I couldn't take away. And the Lord did things for me that I couldn't do for myself, right? And, and I had an extremely bad temper. Like I, I would make a sailor look like he had a clean mouth, and, and, and I had anger in my heart, and, and I didn't know how to take that away. I didn't know how to deal with it. And then when the Lord rescued me, when the Lord saved me, when the Lord reconciled that relationship, he, he dealt with that. He took that away. It wasn't something that I could fix myself, right? And, and just before that day, Jacob was praying. Jacob was praying in, in Genesis thirty-two eleven, and he said, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother because I fear him, right? And here we see a direct answer to Jacob's prayer. Esau hugs him. He kisses him. He runs to him. He weeps on him. Clearly, his explosive murderous heart has been softened. Clearly, he's not the same man that he was before. God gave a direct answer to Jacob's prayer. In verse 5, it says, when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? Because Jacob, remember, Jacob left by himself. He's coming back with a family. And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the servants drew near, and, and they and their children, and they bowed down, and Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. So es- Esau's meeting Jacob's family for the very first time. This is not only reconciliation, it's a family reunion, right? They're, they're getting to meet Uncle Esau for the first time. And Esau said, what do you mean by all of this company that I meet? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau, he's talking about not all of the people. He's talking about, hey, bro, like, what, what was up with all the animals that you sent before I met all of your family? All of the hundreds of animals that Jacob had sent ahead of his, his caravan, right? This was Jacob's peace offering, he was trying to soften Esau's heart. He was trying to, to ease the blow that he thought he was expecting. But we know that God didn't need Jacob's help in the reconciliation, right? Will, will Esau accept this extravagant gift that Jacob is offering? Look at verse 9. A yet another unexpected response. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have some favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. So please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, because I have enough. And thus he urged him, and he took it. So Esau didn't need Jacob's gift. Like God had already blessed Esau as well and made him prosper, right? And he's content And Jacob explains to Esau that he has found favor in God's sight. 
And so through Esau's favorable reconciliation, Jacob also has found favor. And you know, while I was reading this the first time, I thought, I was like, that's a very interesting phrase. Why would Jacob say, I've seen your face and it's like seeing the face of God? He said that to Esau. What does that mean? Because it's a very interesting statement. But Jacob is, you have to remember, like he's had a sleepless night. He's just encountered the living God. Like he's just wrestled with God face to face all night. And, And Jacob has just received not only mercy from the Lord because he didn't die in that encounter, but grace. Grace that God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Right? And because he had seen God's face, because he'd seen God's grace, he could then face Esau. Because Esau had a similar unexpected gracious response to Jacob. So God's unexpected grace is yet seen again through Esau's response to Jacob. So he's, Jacob's getting grace upon grace here. And so Jacob said, please, please accept my blessing that I brought to you because God's dealt graciously with me because I have enough. So he's acknowledging that God has been graciously generous towards him, that he has been blessed, that he knows that he is alive today all because of God alone. There is no other explanation for it. And Jacob also is content, right? He's like, I don't need this. He's like, God's blessed me, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm not going to be greedy with the blessing that God has given me. I want to bless you with it as well. So he's willing to share with his brother, whereas previously, this is a changed man. He was trying to sneak around and cheat and and try to steal the blessing. Here he's sharing the blessing with his brother very willingly, right? So Jacob sent this massive, expensive gift in fear, And he urges Esau to accept it in love. He sent it in fear, but now he's he's urging him to accept it in love as a gracious gift, a part of the blessing. And then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all of the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. It doesn't appear that Jacob wants to follow Esau, right? Just because you reconcile with someone doesn't mean you gotta be buddy-buddy with them, but you have to be best friends with them. Jacob, Jacob also knows that he's going to be traveling a lot slower. Why? Because God slowed him down. God caused him to limp, right? Since God touched his his side, he's, he's going to be limping. And some people think, you know, if you encounter God, you're supposed to come away stronger. But Jacob's encounter with God made him weaker. He left with a limp. A limp that he, that he would have for the rest of his life. A constant reminder because God wanted him to see that he needed to be humbled. That he needed to be broken of his self-dependency. And just like him, we need the same. We need to be humbled. We need to remember that we can't, but he can. We remember that we need help, right? We can't do it by ourselves. And we need to remember that it's for his glory and not our own. In his podcast on Genesis 33, Pastor Paul Carter said that no one is too weak to be used by God, but people are too strong to be used by God. If you don't think you need the Lord, 
then he won't use you. But if you're like, I'm desperate for you. I can do nothing without you. I'm laying before you. I need you. Then you're not being self-dependent. You're being Christ-dependent. Right? And if you've encountered God and you have a limp, then it's a reminder that you're human or that you're weak, that you know that you need him. You're dependent upon him. You're dependent upon his presence. You're dependent upon his power in your life and not your own. Your limp is a reminder that you aren't in control. In verse 15, it says, So Esau said, let, let me leave with you some people who are with me. But Jacob said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booths, simply put. Esau tries to help Jacob. He tries to leave some people to help Jacob, but Jacob's like, I don't need your help, man. I appreciate it. And so Esau leaves, just like that. Jacob goes to Succoth. He builds him a house, builds him some barns for his animals, right? And this is north of the Dead Sea. It's, it's near the Jordan and the, and the Jabbok rivers. And Jacob traveled west over the Jordan to Shechem, which is, look in verse 18. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, so he's traveling west, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, the pieces of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So God fulfilled his promise to bring Jacob back to the land. You remember back in Genesis 28, when God said, behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. Here is the promise fulfilled right here. For I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. So God brought Jacob back. Why? Because God's true to his word. He always fulfills his word. He never breaks a promise, right? And Jacob buys land in Canaan, the promised land, much like Abraham did. Jacob builds an altar to worship God, and he called that altar Mighty God, the God of Israel. So Jacob worships God as his mighty God, finally acknowledging that God is God of Israel. This is a very personal altar for him. And on the significance of Jacob naming the altar, in his commentary, Alan Ross said this, the name was designed to signify the successful fulfillment of all of God's promise to bring him back to Bethel in safety. And Jacob affirmed through worship that the God who appeared to him at Bethel and at Peniel was indeed his strong deliverer, the new man, Israel, thus declared his faith in the strong God by naming the altar. Mighty God, the God of Israel. So when Moses was writing this story and the Israelites are reading this for the very first time, they're about to re-enter into Canaan, into the promised land. So God's promise about this land being purchased is extremely meaningful for them in their context is when they're hearing this for the very first time. It's a reminder that God is faithful and that he hasn't left them that he's trustworthy. Can you imagine how reassuring this is for the Israelites? And Jacob, he had to learn, right, to cling to God and not depend on his own strategy, to cling to God in prayer and trust and not on his own plan. 
that he couldn't do it by himself and that he wasn't alone, thinking that he was alone. We saw last chapter he wasn't alone, even in the dark. Israel, likewise, had to learn to cling to God. They had to depend on God alone for their needs. Despite all the obstacles, despite their enemies, despite the unknown, despite the uncertainties facing them, and likewise today, we are called to do the very same. We can't rely on our own strength. We can't be fearful of man. We must fear the Lord. We must embrace that God has killed the hostility between us and him on the cross. He's reconciled us to himself through his son so that we would no longer be strangers and aliens sojourning in a distant land. But that he would bring us to our heavenly home as citizens and saints, members of the household of God. So I thought of a few application questions for us. What do you need to do in response to this text? Who in your life do you need to reconcile with? God? Do you need to reconcile with God? Do you need to be reconciled? Do you need to be reconciled with siblings, your parents, your friends? Where in your life is there a broken relationship that needs to be restored? You know where there's a gap in a relationship. You feel it. You know it. Take the initiative to close that gap. And as we've already seen in the Ephesians passage that and in this passage in Genesis 33, that the, the central focus is on reconciliation, right? That's, that's a really big word, but it means to restore relationship, right? To bring harmony where there was hostility, to bring peace where there was once war. So where is there fighting in your relationships? Where in your life do you need the peace of God that only he can bring? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 is a beautiful passage Listen to this, believers. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So as followers of Jesus, we've received this gift of a restored relationship with God, and now we are ambassadors of Christ. That means we carry the gospel message of reconciliation to a world full of broken and war-torn relationships. And Jesus, he brings this personally home for us when he's talking to his disciples in Matthew 5, and he says, leave your gift at the altar. If you're going to worship and you know you've got a gap in a relationship, if you know you need to be restored in a relationship, you need to be reconciled in a relationship, leave your gift there. Don't even come and worship the Lord yet because you need to go first and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation must take place before worship. Reconciliation must take place before worship. We see this in Genesis. We see this in the Gospels. We see this in the Epistles. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of teaching in Roy. And Braden's walking them through the Gospel of Mark. And that week when I got to teach, it was in Mark 12, when Jesus is talking about the greatest commandment. And he summed up all of the Old Testament, right? And he says, love the Lord your God. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. How? 
with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the greatest commandment. This vertical relationship, right, between God and us. The problem with that commandment is that nor I nor anyone else can do it. We can't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's impossible. We fall short of it every day. We can't do it. But Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that we could not fulfill this greatest commandment perfectly, and that's why Jesus alone did. That's why Jesus alone could live perfectly. And Jesus alone could sum up and fulfill all of the law and all of the prophets perfectly because he was the perfect prophet. He was the perfect priest. He was the perfect king. He is the perfect person who has made a way for us by offering a perfect sacrifice of his pure blood on the cross because Jesus never sinned. Therefore, he loved God perfectly, something that we could not do. It's very clear. John clears it up for us even if we think we love God, right? 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that you've loved God, but that he has loved us. How? By sending his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. Really big word, propitiation, just means Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus satisfies the wrath of holy God in our place, and he takes all of our unholiness on himself and credits to us his holiness, his perfection. Because of this relationship between holy God and unholy man, we can be restored, all because of Jesus. He made a way for us to be whole, for that vertical relationship to be healed, to be reconciled. Now, the first love is restored. It's reconciled, all because of what Jesus has done for us. So then, Jesus says the second commandment, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these two, right? The first leads to the second. Without the right vertical relationship with God, we cannot have a loving horizontal relationship with anybody else. If we don't fix the vertical first, if that isn't fixed, then the horizontal cannot be fixed. Vertical comes before horizontal every single time. When we get those things mixed up, when we try reconciliation in our own way, in our own means, horizontally, we're always going to see division and strife and envy and anger and resentment and jealousy and destruction every single time. That's why Genesis 32 comes before Genesis 33. Jacob's reconciliation with God happens before his reconciliation with his brother. And the same is true for us today. So the question is, have you been reconciled with the Lord Jesus today? Like, do you need to be reconciled with Jesus today? Do you need to be reconciled with your brother today? Are you being a minister of reconciliation? Are you carrying this good news to a broken world? I love how Alan Ross sums it up, the whole chapter, and I'll close with this quote. Reconciliation is a work of grace, to be sought by faith and acknowledged in praise. Grace, faith, praise. Reconciliation is a work of grace, to be sought by faith 
and acknowledged in praise. Be reconciled to God, which makes reconciliation in all other relationships possible. It's impossible apart from Jesus. Let's pray. Mighty God, we praise you because you have provided reconciliation for us through sending your son in the likeness of men, being fully God yet fully man at the very same time and doing what we could never do, loving you with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. Jesus, thank you so much for teaching us, for being our example, for going before us, and for doing what we could not do. Thank you for laying your life down for us on the cross so that we would have a way to have a relationship with the Father. Jesus, you reconciled us back to the Father, all because of your grace, all because of your love. And because of that, we can now be ministers of reconciliation. We can be ambassadors of reconciliation. We can go and seek out all of the gaps and all of the relationships that we've had. And we can be carriers of this good news. And I pray that we would be. That we would be the ambassadors you've called us to be. And I pray that we would seek out those people in our lives that we know where there's a gap. We know there's needs to be healing. There needs to be re restoration. Lord, and that, and that all because of your grace, your heart, you would work on those people's hearts before we even come and see them. And I pray that there would be a response much like Esau and Jacob, an unexpected encounter of grace. And I pray, God, that you would do these things in our church. I pray that you would do these things in this community. I pray that you would do these things around the world for the advancement of your kingdom and the glory of your great name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.